Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another fine show for you. I'll speak with former Union College pitcher Jake Fishman, who made his Major League debut Sunday with the Miami Marlins. And Gazette sports writer Adam Schindler joins the program to discuss the legacy of former WWE CEO Vince McMahon, as well as talking about his new sparring session column he is writing monthly. Week 3 of the Saratoga horse racing season is in the books, and week 4 starts Wednesday, and it's Whitney week. So to give us a lowdown on what's happening at Saratoga is the Capital Region's premier horse racing writer, Mike McAdam. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ken. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? Hope there's been, uh, been some tickets cashed. Uh, I can't say uh, that for myself so far, but then again, I haven't been very active, let's say, um, at least at that aspect of the game. But uh, maybe I'll get a degenerate Wednesday coming up pretty soon. So, and then... so, so you didn't win a Mega Billions on Saturday. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, that's why I'm still talking to you today, I guess. Um, it's probably an indication I did not hit the Mega Millions. So, well, let's talk about uh, what happened we saw on Saturday. Epicenter wins the Jim Dandy pretty authorita- authoritatively and stamping himself as the Travers favorite against what should be really an interesting field. Yeah, um, it, he, he really needed that one because he came in second in the Derby, came in second in the Preakness, and had not won a race since the Louisiana Derby back in March, but in my, my mind personally, I thought he was still the best, you know, arguably the best three-year-old male in the country, and he really showed that in the Jim Dandy. I mean, he didn't win by 10 lengths or anything like that, but he beat, you know, some good horses, not a lot of them, but two that were highly regarded and that um, trainer Chad Brown had high expectations for, for in Zandon and Preakness winner early voting, and um, Epicenter just kind of bided his time in the back, made his move at the top of the stretch, won by a length and a half, and, and did it like really professionally and looked like the best horse on the track that day. So and he, he really, really needed that one just to win because kind of gut-wrenching losses in the Derby and the Preakness, and you knew this was a really good horse, but he needed to show it on the track, and he definitely did that on Saturday which sets him up very nicely for the Travers on August 27th because now he's got a mile and an eighth win on the track. We know the mile and a quarter of the Travers is going to be no problem because he ran great in the the der- Derby, which is a mile and a quarter, and the Preakness was a mile and a 316th. Um, who he'll face is kind of – there's an interesting mix. I mean, you know, we're still a few weeks out, but Chad still wants to send – Zandon and early voting. He didn't see anything in the Jim Dandy that would discourage him from, uh, you know, running right back in the Travers. Um, plus, he's got a third one, Artorias, who won the Curlin uh, last Friday, which in the Curlin always produces one horse that winds up in the Travers, and it's always like a late bloomer or somebody. Uh, I referred to it as the Island of Misfit Toys, the Curlin, because you get some weird mix of late bloomers and horses that just weren't on the derby trail scene and suddenly they you know maybe they get it together but aren't quite ready to run in a race like the grade two jim dandy so they stick them in the curling on friday the day before which is the exact same mile and an eighth on the main track is just a way smaller person has no grade on it and so our this horse artorius is very lightly raced but ran very impressively in the curling will 
be Chad's third candidate for the Travers to take on epicenter. Meanwhile, out of Todd Pletcher's barn, um, yeah, he wants to get Charger in there. He just won the Dwyer on July 2nd at uh, Belmont Park by, oh, only 23 lengths. And uh, they had high hopes for him. You know, he, he ran kind of greenly in the Florida Derby back in April and, um, you know, kind of bombed out in the, in the uh, Kentucky Derby. But he's, you know, appears to be ready to roll. So he's going to be an interesting kind of X factor for the Travers. And meanwhile, Chad is, or Chad, Todd um, Butcher has um, hinted that they are considering Nest, the Philly who just ran very well in the coaching club American Oaks, um, considering, put it this way, they haven't ruled out the Travers. I mean, most likely she's going to run in the Alabama on the 20th, but they haven't taken her off the board yet for the Travers, so who knows. Um, it would be very interesting to see if they, they've, they've already run her against males in, the, in a very good second-place performance to Mo Donegal in the Belmont Stakes, so it's definitely they're not afraid to run her against males. Um and I, I expect to see her in the Alabama, but the fact that they haven't ruled her out of the Travers is kind of cool. Um, and then a couple others, um, Cyberknife, who won the Haskell over uh, Taba and Jack Christopher the week before the Jim Dandy. Brad Cox said he wants to bring him back in the Travers. And then one more that we know is definitely targeting the Travers is Kentucky Derby Rich Strike, who won that race at odds of 80 to 1 and has just been sort of biding his time since uh, getting his butt kicked in the Preakness so um, that's kind of who who are the definites and at least one probable in Nest or not probable but maybe outside shot of seeing Nest in there so kind of a cool interesting mix um, Chad Brown's never won the Travers I guess we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here um, uh, he's over for 12 or whatever it is, but he's going to have three legit shots with these um, in there. But I still consider Epicenter had a little bit heads above, you know, the rest of the three-year-old male field right now, and as Jim Dandy kind of proved it. Yeah, I was impressed with watching the race on Saturday that how Epicenter had to kick there at the end where early voting seemed to fade down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, Epicenter just sort of was like, it was in really good position under uh, Joel Rosario, and um, and just you know he he, he won like a, a favorite should and just did everything right and and just kind of you could tell the whole way he looked comfortable. He was in a rhythm. Um, you knew the distance of mile and eighth was going to be no problem for him, and he, it was just kind of cool to see him revalidate himself. Not that. I, me personally, ever had any doubt that he was really, really good, and I picked him. Um, but, you know, he, he still needed to show up and, and show up in a professional winning way. And, you know, he checked all the boxes on Saturday. Well, the other stake race that, or actually the other important race that took place on Saturday was the AG Vanderbilt Handicap, and Jackie Warrior uh, won that race. Uh, the question arises now, Mac, does Jackie's uh, Warrior have a shot at Horse of the Year being a sprinter? Um, not really a good shot, not so much from the sprinter angle, but from who else is like the top contenders for horse of the year. And I know, and speaking of getting ahead of ourselves, it's, you know, it's only the couple of days into August. It's maybe a little crazy to be talking about horse of the year with the breeders cup isn't until the first weekend in uh, November. But, um, so right now, um, I would say Jackie's warrior is an outlier in that conversation, just based on what he's done. Um, 
based on the other two that are the top contenders and head and shoulders above everybody, he has no shot at it because we're talking about life is good. We'll talk about him in a little while, who's going to be the heavy favorite in the Whitney this weekend, but also flight line. It's, it's sort of like a twin towers right now of life is good on the East coast and flight line on the, on the West coast. And they're not going to run against each other until the Breeders' Cup classic. If they both go in that race, I'm still not, 100% certain life is good. You know, he, he could still wind up in the Breeders' Cup mile and still have a shot at Horse of the Year based on that. But both of them would have to lose at some point for Jackie's Warrior, warrior um, to have a shot at Horse of the Year. Um, but it's racing, so anything can happen. In the meantime, what Jackie's Warrior has done so far this year is amazing. He's four for four, just won a grade one AG Vanderbilt, and it will be a heavy, heavy favorite in the forego on Travers Day. Um, accomplished something that nobody in the history of Saratoga has ever done. They've been racing there since 1863, and for the first time ever, a horse won a grade one stakes at the spa three years in a row. It seems kind of amazing that nobody's ever yeah, done that, yeah, but yeah. Um, people did their research, and and sure enough, um, he's the first one to do it, and he's going to throw in another grade. I guess we have to look up who who's won multiple grade ones <laughs> in consecutive years or something like that. I mean, he didn't. he's not a candidate for that because last year when he won the Amsterdam and, and the Alan Jerkins, Amsterdam's a grade two, but... I mean, there there might be some other weird streak on the line when he runs in the forego later, which, you know, I fully expect him to win easily. Really, really cool horse. And, um, you know, I mean, there's nobody even close to him in the male sprint division or even the overall sprint division right now. Um, it's just kind of a privilege to watch this horse run. Well, Friday morning as we get ready for week four, the uh, uh, horse racing season at Saratoga, the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame will hold its class of 22 induction ceremonies. It's a short class uh, in the contemporary category with just mares Teppin and Beholder going in. Yeah, um, now Beholder, Saratoga fans, unless they've um, you know gone on the road and traveled hundreds of miles, have never seen Beholder race because she never raced at Saratoga. She's based in California and was just this magnificent um has this tremendous record and was when i voted i mean i didn't even have to think twice i'm I'm not even sure if i looked at her past performances i was just like yep she's in um and kind of the same thing with teppin now we did see her run here twice um but she didn't win either time um uh trainer mark cassie uh sent her let's see let me just pull her up real quick am i looking at the right one here uh, of course I'm not. I had her. I had this picked out. Oh no, I know where it is. Okay, I got like 20 tabs open on my laptop right now. I just have to find the right that's one. All? Okay, here she is. <laughs> yeah, that's all. And I'm still struggling. Um, she so she came to uh, run in the Boston Spa and the uh, Diana in uh, 2015 and finished second in both races. Um, and not long after that, Mark Cassie decided that longer stuff is not maybe not her wheelhouse so he sent her the breeders cup mile that year 2015 to run against males and she won which led him to subsequently run her against males a couple more times including the queen and stakes which is a group one at ascot in england she won that which is remarkable um and then she also won the uh the uh, Woodbine Mile up at Woodbine in uh, Toronto against Mail. So she's, she's uh, let's see, 
She's three for three against males at the mile distance. And then she closed out her career in 2016 by finishing second in the Breeders' Cup mile and her trying to defend her crown. Um, tremendous record. Um, but it was kind of like, even though she got beat at Saratoga twice um, at the 2015 meet, that kind of looks like the turning point where Cassie um, decided, all right, we're not going to try to run mile on eighth anymore. Let's scale her back to a mile. We don't care if we have to run against males. We're... we're She's a miler on the turf, and sure enough, she was. Didn't matter who she ran against. She had this great record. Let's see, three, four, five, six, seven, eight straight wins between um, the first lady at Keeneland in 2015 and the Woodbine Mile in 2016. Uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five of those were grade ones. So, again, she she was a pretty much a no-brainer. And I, I called Mark Cassie after the after the. Um, Class of 22 was announced uh, however many months ago, and he, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2020. Um, the ceremony obviously was postponed until last year because of COVID. Um, but he said, you know, I, I might not be in the Hall of Fame if it wasn't for her, what she did in those three, you know, Breeder Cup Mile, Woodbine, and, and the Queen Anne Stakes against males. I mean, that kind of put him over the top a little bit. So that was kind of interesting to hear him say that. So, um, yeah, so it's just those two horses in the contemporary class. No humans going in, although there are humans in the, uh, you know, the other stuff like the historical committee and the pillars of the turf, including Marshall Cassidy, who's very familiar. He um, fortunately died last year. Um, Saratoga fans will remember him as the voice of Naira um, track announcing uh, in the 80s. Um, it was the predecessor to Tom Durkin. It was also, you know, because he was the Naira announcer, he, he also was on all the major networks during a lot of big races um, and just wore a lot of different hats over the years and was just a wonderful gentleman. Um, so Marshall Cassidy goes in. I think it's in the Pillars of the Turf um, category. Um, but other than that, the contemporary category is going to be a real short program because it's going to be, I'm not sure who's going to represent Beholder from California, but I'm, Imagine Mark Cassie's going to get up there and say a lot of nice things about Tepper. Yeah. Well, as we mentioned, it's Whitney Week, and, of course, the race on Saturday. A little short on horses, but uh, long on top Fletcher influence. Uh, he'll have three horses from his barn led by, as we mentioned earlier, life is good. Yeah, and life is good. He's done nothing wrong. Um, he's coming off a dominating performance in the John Nehrud at uh, Belmont Park. Um, he's worked flawlessly at – um, Saratoga. We, Erica Miller, our photographer, does a wonderful job. She and I were there at 5:30 in the morning on Saturday to watch Life Is Good, and uh, afterwards, when we caught up with Todd Fletcher, um, the question was posed: Has this horse ever had a bad day since he came into your barn? And he said, No. Like he's never had a bad day. Wish we could all say something like that, really? right? <laughs> I'd like to be able to go through a week without saying I've never had a bad day. This horse has been in Pletcher's barn since I think March or something. After he used to be trained by Pletcher or uh, by Bob Baffert. Um, you know, we've covered this ground many times. Uh, I thought Life Is Good was going to win the Triple Crown last year, and then he got hurt and missed the whole Triple Crown series. And then Baffert got into his drug trouble, and Windstar Farm transferred uh, Life Is Good eventually to Pletcher's barn. The horse has done nothing wrong since then, um, and uh, you know, I expect a huge run out of him on uh, Saturday. Um, right now, uh, the draw is—you know—we haven't seen the draw yet as of Tuesday, 
But um, his three will be besides Life is Good. Pletcher will have Happy Saver and American Revolution, who's kind of interesting. He's a New York bred, um, who's coming off a second in the Stephen Foster to Olympiad, who's a very good horse out of Bill Mott's barn. And Olympiad will be in the Whitney. And then, speaking of California, um, it's kind of cool to see Hot Rod Charlie's going to, um, you know, the trainer Doug O'Neill's going to send him to the race. So what, right now it looks like those five, but man, that's a pretty good five. And um, Hot Rod Charlie's had an interesting couple years of campaigning here. Um, third in the Derby last year, second in the Belmont. Um, he won the Haskell by a nose and got DQ'd because he's the one that clipped heels. Um, I can't remember who the horse was, uh, but that allowed Mandaloon to win the Haskell at via DQ. Um, Hot Rod Charlie ran pretty well in the Breeders' Cup Classic, finished fourth to Nick's go. Um, he ran in the Dubai World Cup and finished second to Country Grammar, uh, who, by the way, just finished second in the San Diego, San Diego Handicap at Santa Anita um, this past weekend, if anybody wants to keep track of Country Grammar. Um, so Hot Rod Charlie was second to him in the $12 million Dubai World Cup in March. Um, and since then, he was second by a head to mind control in the Salvatore Mile at uh, Monmouth on uh, uh, June 18th. So it's kind of cool to see him in there. He's he's like a really, really good older dirt horse that we haven't seen, um, you know, on the East Coast since he was uh, second in the Belmont to Essential Quality last year. And we've never seen him at Saratoga. So he's coming in and taking on Pletcher's big uh, you know, three amigos there. And um, along with Bill Mott, Scott Olympiad, who's a very good horse coming off a win in the Stephen Foster. So just five, but pretty damn good five. And looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, how life is good performs against a pretty good field, um, despite how short it is. Uh, we talked about this at the start of the meet, uh, the weather, and they're talking on Thursday, temperatures hovering near around 100. Uh, how much is Naira going to be monitoring the situation with the horses and the weather? They never stop monitoring it. Um, doesn't even matter if it's going to be 90s. It's that's like a 24-hour job for them, um, especially because Saratoga can be really, really unpredictable with rain, which can pop up at any time. You know, on short notice. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see um, on Wednesday when I'm there. Um, we're going to be keeping tabs with Naira to see if there's any preliminary thoughts of maybe just canceling. Thursday's card. I'm not sure how prepared they're to do. They are to do that right now, but um, they, they're looking at it because they look at it nonstop, 24/7. Anyway, but in particular, they're going to be eagle eye on the situation. Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to quote the number, but there's a heat index threshold that if they hit it, it's like 10 something. Um, at that moment, they'll they'll they. By rule, I believe they have to shut it down. Um, but if they know ahead of time that there's a forecast for that threshold to be hit, we've seen in the past that they've gone ahead and just, you know, it's very rare, but um, they'll cancel a card the day before just to not inconvenience people. But also, if you know, you know. Um, the other thing that kind of plays into it a little bit, I don't know if they would ever admit this, but... 
seems like they're a lot more reluctant to cancel a card if it's like Travers Day. Yeah. <laughs> if it's like a Thursday where there is, really isn't a lot of going on. I mean, the stakes are pretty light until we get to Friday. And obviously Saturday is humongous. But, um, you know, Wednesday and Thursday, stakes-wise, they don't even have a stakes on Wednesday because the shine again didn't fill. So, I mean, they, they have a steeplechase um, stakes in the first race, but it's the Jonathan Kaiser, and it's very low level from a you know stake standpoint mm-hmm. thursday we'll see it's going to be something we'll keep an eye on on you know wednesday of course and then uh you know we'll take it from there but whether if the card is on or not whatever you're doing try to stay in the shade or, or stay cooled off somehow because it's supposed to be pretty nasty yeah. finally um how about those phillies sweeping your pirates four games in what sport? Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like there's no outside world exists right now. Um, and the last time I checked, which was a couple of weeks ago, and don't ask me even why I checked, but the Pirates were, I think, 17 games out of first place. Not that they have any aspirations to winning a division or anything like that. But I was like, I had checked like a month and a half ago, and they were 12 out. And I was like, all right, get on a little winning streak and you know, be a pain in the butt for some people. And then I saw they were 17 out and I was like, all right, I, it, when does the 2023 season start? And, uh, so congratulations, but, um, I, I got nothing for you cause I haven't been paying attention. Well, <laughs> flat so, out. well considering how bad my flyers were this year and your Bruins played pretty well against them. is like, I, I need a chance to uh, get some revenge here. <laughs> Well, it's it's a cold plate of revenge because I don't even know what you're talking about. So, I mean, you can wallow in your Phillies sweep of the Pirates um, success. I don't know if they pass out a medal or something for that, but um, um, it's a little one-sided, this whole revenge. I don't know if it counts as revenge if the person who's like the victim doesn't even know that they're a victim. So, that's my revenge. (laughs) I don't know anything about it. Philadelphia Wawa is better than Sheets in Pittsburgh. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> oh, I'm from I'm a New York bred, so I have no dog in that fight. I'm a huge Wawa fan from going, driving down to Baltimore. Um, so I, I don't know if I've ever even been in a Sheets, even though I've been to Pittsburgh several times. Yeah. Well, I'll leave that one to you guys from Philly. <laughs> All right, Mike. Appreciate from Pennsylvania. it. Yeah, enjoy their time at this weekend or this week at Saratoga. We'll talk next week. All right, thanks, Ken. I'll talk to you guys next week. All right, that because that's sports writer Mike McAdam, former Union College pitcher Jake Fishman is coming on next to talk about making the Major League debut on Sunday here on the Parting Shots Podcast. Hey, Saratoga Horse Racing fans. You have a chance to win a $50 gift card to a Daily Gazette advertiser by playing the Gazette Saratoga Pick 7. Here's what you do. Pick your horses to score the most points in the first seven races at Saratoga Racecourse and win the $50 gift card. To play, go to www.dailygazette.com pick7 and make your picks 15 minutes before post time the day of the race. The Saratoga Pick 7 contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not affiliated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Union College Hockey TV analyst Brian Unger. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Shot. Welcome back to the podcast. My next guest was the most dominant pitcher in Union College history. And on Sunday, he made his Major League debut with the Miami Marlins 
please welcome back to the podcast, Jake Fishman. Jake, uh, welcome back. It's, I think it was about this time last year we talked uh, after you pitched, pitched in the Olympics for Team Israel. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, tell me how excited were you? I know it's just you know the, the one game, but you know, talk about the circumstances. How you got called up and the excitement that uh, be able to pitch on Sundays. You know, talk about first the, the call up. For sure, uh, it was definitely a crazy few days. Uh, you know, so on Thursday night after the game ended uh, in AAA, uh, our you know pitching coach called me into the manager's office. Me and my teammate Nick Nider both were in there. And, uh, you know, our manager, Brownie, he said, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, um, but we're sending you guys to Miami, and there's a chance you'll get activated. Um, and so we flew down to Miami early that next morning, and we were kind of, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. Uh, they kind of just were telling us, hey, give us a little time. We're still figuring some stuff out. Um, and then it was a couple hours before that Friday night game that, um, that, uh, Don called me into his office and, uh, he just shook my hand and said, congratulations, we're going to activate you for tonight's game. Well, when he, when Don Manley said those words, what was going through your mind? Um, you know, I, <laughs> it was just super overwhelming because it's, it's so many years of training and playing that build up to that one moment um and it was just it was very overwhelming and you dream about that moment for so long uh it was it was pretty much exactly how i imagined it was going to feel yeah what what is it like the difference obviously it's a big difference but you talk about being in a major league clubhouse as opposed to being in a minor league clubhouse it's you know it's very different um but at the same time, I knew a lot of those guys. There were so many other jumbo shrimp uh, players that were up there at the time. It felt very normal, um, and I had a lot of friendly faces there. So it was it was pretty comforting to see all those guys there. I love that name, the jumbo, the Jacksonville jumbo shrimp. That's of course the AAA of uh, um, the Miami Marlins. That's that's, kind of, that's a neat nickname. Yeah, it's, it's everybody loves it. It's great. <laughs> I, I was saying that. Um, what was going when you obviously you were sitting there in the in the bullpen Sunday, probably not expecting to do anything, and then the Mets get out to a big lead there, and then the call comes from the dugout. They want you to get warmed up. But what when you were told you you start you better start getting ready? What was going through your mind? Yeah, um, you know it was my third day hanging in the bullpen, so the first day I was incredibly nervous. The second day I wasn't as nervous, and the third day I felt. I felt a little bit better in there, um, but as soon as they called my name, uh, it was basically full panic mode. I basically sailed every, almost every single pitch I threw to the catcher, um, and then once I actually ran out to that game mound and Mattingly handed me the ball and he said, you know, he just told me the situation, is first and second, two outs, um, and he just said, go get them, and then it, it gave me comfort because that's what every manager has ever said to me when I go out to the mound, um, and it just felt like a, a normal game. When was it, was there a sense of nervousness? Obviously, you're, you, know, you know the Marlins don't draw well, but to be out on the, a major league mound, did you get a chance to maybe take in the moment before you threw your first pitch and look around and said, "My gosh, I've made it." Uh, you know, so they actually did 
draw pretty good that game uh, playing the Mets. There were there were quite a few Mets fans yeah, there. True. Um, but you know, I honestly I didn't. I once I got out there, I didn't look up. Um, I honestly just wanted to keep my head down uh, and focus on executing my pitches. And you know, Lindor was was up and he was my first batter, so. I was I was way more focused on that than uh, you know taking that moment that initial first moment in. You ended up uh, pitching a three and a third innings, allowing just one run on four hits. You pitched yourself out of some trouble. Uh, how would you feel? How did you feel after you came out of the game uh, after you were done? Uh, you know, I felt really good actually. Um, I gave up the one run, but uh, I felt like. They didn't really get any uh, really hard contact off me, and um, you know it just felt really satisfying being able to go you know 3.1 innings against a really good major league team, um, and it just it gave me the confidence that I can do that against anybody. What did um, Don Mattingly say to you uh, after um, you came out? Yeah, him and uh, and both. Mel Stottlemyre, our pitching coach, they, they came out to me and said, hey, that was a really awesome job. You totally saved us. Um, you know, just to eat those innings up was, was really good. And, um, and, yeah, they just said I did a really good job. I mean, how satisfied were you? How exci- excited were you after that effort? Um, did you, did you, do you feel that you could do this uh, regularly in the major leagues? If given a chance. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that Mets lineup is really good. Um, they got some great hitters there. And, you know, being able to work through the lineup and, and even face some guys two times in the same outing, uh, being able to navigate through them, um, it definitely gave me a lot of confidence. Of course, uh, on Monday you were designated for assignment, but that's is that more of a paper move at this point just to get you back to Jacksonville? Because, uh, they, they, what, the... You weren't really initially on the 40-man roster, sort of, they purchased your contract, right? Exactly. So, you know, they needed a roster spot for um, Jesus Lazardo to come back and start. Um, and, you know, it just happened to be me. I threw a ton of pitches the day before. And, um, you know, they, they probably think that I'll end up going back to Jacksonville. Um, but, you know, before that, I have to go out through waivers, and so another team could actually claim me and put me on their 40-man. But if that doesn't happen, then I'd end up just going back to Jacksonville. Of course, we're we're speaking on Tuesday, the day of the uh, trade deadline, so maybe maybe somebody will take a chance on you. Who knows? I know it's it's there's a ton of shuffling going on with everybody's teams right now, so you never know what's going to happen. I mean. As far as the connection with Union, I mean, what does it mean to you to be able to be one of the first Union players to pitch in the majors in a long time? Man, it's it's crazy. It, it just feels like such a big accomplishment. Um, and and it shows that any any player at, at any level, you know, can, can work hard and be super consistent for years and years and, uh, and can eventually – make it so it just it feels amazing yeah i'm looking at uh the union press release and i mean before you got called up you were four and oh you're four and oh with jacksonville the 1.87 during run average 43 strikeouts in 43 and a third innings 
Uh, how would you assess your season so far? It seems like you're putting up some great numbers down at Jacksonville. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was very happy with how my season had been going in AAA um, and just felt like I was continuing to build that confidence and that uh, I think it led over into uh, into my major league outing and uh, just gave me the confidence that if I just attack people, um, then I can I can get them out. I'm going to read you the list of names that have from Union have played in the majors, and it's this goes back. You're the first one since <laughs> Bill, since Bill Cunningham pitched uh, had a three year career with the Washington Senators in 1912. <laughs> it's wow, been over 100 years. This is according to the Baseball Reference. So you're the fifth Union yeah. player, you're the fifth Union player to reach. Uh, the Major League Baseball. Uh, Others were Seth Sigby in 1893, Jim McCauley, 1885, and Frank Mountain from 1880 to 1882. That's amazing that it goes back that far, but it's been amazing that it's been a a long time since uh, Union players got into the Major Leagues. Yeah, that's, uh, it's honestly crazy. (laughs) You know, hearing those, those names and how far and how long it's been. Um, do you think? I mean, do you feel confident now that if you get called up again, or if some another team claims you, that you can be fill a role as a as a reliever in Major League Baseball? Yeah, definitely. You know, I I feel like now that that first one is over, it's it's a huge weight off my chest, um, and it was a it was a great outing. So. I feel like uh, that that really just gives me the confidence that I can I could do that uh, in the majors consistently. So, especially being a left-hander, we know how you know left-handers and people, teams are looking for left-handers. That's you know, you know you, uh, left lefties are a commodity. Definitely, definitely. You never know what's going to happen. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you're probably in a good spot with an organization like the Marlins, who are trying to you know, build something there. I mean, you're still young enough that uh, maybe if you uh, stick stick with them uh, going the next season, maybe you make an impression. You make the impression you made on Sunday. If you know, maybe you get another shot with this team, either later this season or even next season. I mean, I mean, can you look at that? And say, you know, give me another shot. Definitely, definitely. I think um, you know both the staff there was was very happy with how I performed. So. Um, you know, it, it depends a lot on, on what happens. There's so many different things going on, trades and injuries and stuff. So um, if I do end up back with Marlins, then hopefully I'll just get another shot. Yeah. Uh, down the road, there's the World Baseball Class is coming up. Uh, we, do, you, do you plan for, to pitch for Team Israel again? I'd love to. Um, you know, I, haven't, I haven't talked to Kinsler about it yet, but that's definitely something that I want to do. Well, Jake, I do appreciate a few minutes talking about this, and congratulations. Uh, I think you made uh, Union College very proud uh, of uh, making your Major League debut on Sunday. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're welcome. That's Jake Fishman, because that sports writer Adam Schindler is coming on to talk about Vince McMahon and Schindler's new column called Sparring Session. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast.
the track is your premier source of horse racing news and events from the daily newspaper of the Saratoga Racecourse, the Daily Gazette. At the track features racing tips, feature stories, picks by Naira racing analyst Anthony Stabile and Andy Serling, and direct links to Naira bets. Check out At the Track at www.dailygazette.com slash at the track. Hi, this is Union Women's Hockey Coach Josh Skiba. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to talk some combat sports. We have a new column in the Gazette that will run once a month called Sparring Session. The man who uh, will be doing that column is Adam Schinder. Adam, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk about the big news that happened on July 22nd. Um, Vince McMahon steps down as the chairman of uh, the WWE. What is that? signify for for wwe and and wrestling in in general yeah this is a giant sea change in the professional wrestling business uh that's really uh this has been building for a little more than about a month now since the first uh, wall street journal reporting came out uh in june uh that mcmahon was under investigation for uh, by wwe's board uh, for some uh, payments for NDAs that he'd made uh, for uh, the initial one was for an affair uh, with uh, with an employee and it's since come out that there have been more uh, $12 million over the course of 16 years and uh, he stepped down at that point uh, as uh, chairman and CEO but was still uh, running things from a creative standpoint uh, but uh, yeah, on July, on July 22nd in one of the ultimate Friday news dumps. Uh, he just goes on tweets, I'm retiring, uh, which has since come out that it's uh, really more of a resignation uh, than a retirement. Uh, practically, it makes no difference. But this is the guy who, for 40 years, this company, uh, which is the biggest professional wrestling company on the planet, was essentially his singular vision. And you know, it's now come out. Now it's not his baby anymore. His, his family is obviously still involved. His daughter Stephanie is now uh, co-CEO and chairwoman uh, alongside uh, Nick Khan, who is a uh, former kind of Holly, uh, former kind of sports media power agent, uh, represented guys like uh, like Darren Ravel, uh, Colin Cowherd, uh, and had really and really came to prominence a few years ago when he negotiated these now billion-dollar WWE TV deals uh, and the sale of their uh, their streaming service to Peacock uh, and. The big one for the product is is Vince McMahon giving up creative control, uh, which is now being taken over by by Paul Levesque, the wrestler Triple H, his son-in-law, uh, and it's going to be very interesting. We've gone forty years, you know, since the early '80s when he when he took control of the company, bought bought things out from his father, uh, Vince McMahon, uh, Vince Vincent J McMahon. Uh, this has been his vision for forty years, and there's a lot of people who. Especially in the 20 years uh, since the, the end of WCW in the early in the early 2000s, WWE is professional wrestling in America, and it's really going to be interesting to see where it goes now that it's not Vince McMahon's vision. I mean, I go back to the days when Vince McMahon was the announcer back in the 70s for, yeah. for one of his WWF and his yeah. all-star wrestling and uh, you know, promoted by Phil, Phil Zetko, supervised <laughs> by the State Athletic Commission. I, that's what's like me on the Saturday and Sunday. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I used to go to some wrestling uh, events at the Spectrum back in the day yeah. when I was uh, in high school. I mean, the growth of me, I mean, I, the, you know, the 80s were the big time, obviously, the first 
big time when you had Hulk Hogan, mm -hmm. Macho Man, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, Andre the Giant. Yeah. I mean, they've they've had gone, they've had some cyclical moments, cyclical moments where they've been up, they've been down. I mean, they were really surpassed for a while by WCW. Yeah. Uh, but what did Vince McMahon do to really take control of professional wrestling in America? He, uh, so there are multiple things. One is he was, uh, from a business perspective, incredibly ruthless. Uh, he went in to all of the major he, of the major television markets in the country that had their own specific wrestling territories, and he either bought out those contracts or he would counter-program them with these gigantic stars. And that's the other one, is he had the biggest stars in professional wrestling. Hulk Hogan, uh, who really is made before he comes full-time to, to the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, he's a humongous star uh, in, the, in the, uh, the AWA, which aired on ESPN, had a huge deal. Uh, and obviously exploded in the in about 82, 83 with his role uh, as Thunderlips in Rocky Three, And he sort of got fired for that, I believe, I read, where he could be, Vince fired him for doing that or something? Uh, no, there, were, there, were some, there were some issues. Uh, the big issue was he was in the AWA uh, run by, by Vern Gagne at the time. And essentially Hogan got frustrated that he wasn't, uh, with his positioning uh, on the card, that he wasn't being made the main guy, even though he was clearly at that point uh, their most popular performer. And Vince McMahon came in, bought out... He was... McMahon was buying out everybody's biggest stars. With the exception of uh, the Mid-Atlantic AWA territory... Or NWA territory. Uh, and guys like Ric Flair, the Four Horsemen, uh, who come along later. There's pretty much no one that didn't work for the WWF during the 80s. The, the mid through late 80s are a gigantic boom period for the company. Uh... In about by the early '90s, it starts to peter out. Uh, things get really bad when uh, Vince McMahon goes on trial for distributing steroids. He is uh, he gets off on those charges. The early '90s, which is uh, really the period that I grew up in, uh, I grew up at the tail end of the the Hulkamania era, yeah. and then the early '90s, what the WWF called their New Generation era, uh, is really from a business perspective. A complete, a complete garbage fire. Yeah. Uh, the company in 1994, especially 1995 through early 1997, is really, really struggling. Uh, Hogan leaves uh, in 1993. 94 goes to WCW, which has the benefit of just the infinite money of Ted Turner. Uh, and in 96, when WCW launches uh, the NW, the New World Order angle. Uh, that completely changes things around. WCW decides, had, in 95, decided to go head-to-head -head with the WWF on Monday nights with Nitro against Monday Night Raw. And yeah, from about 1996 through late 1998, uh, WCW is either number one or one in 1A. Uh, then things very, very quickly... Uh, <laughs> In a span of unbelievably terrible business moves, WCW goes from the biggest wrestling promotion in the world in 1998 to completely dead by March of 2001. Yeah, it was incredible. Cause, I mean, it looked like you know WWE was probably going to be dead in WCW. And what, what did Vince McMahon do to get WWE back on track and be the premier? Uh, this was again a this was stars. Uh, this is an era where at that time. The two, other than Hulk Hogan, arguably the two biggest stars in the history of 
professional wrestling, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and The Rock, who is pretty much the biggest star in the world at this point, fall on his lap, nearly both almost completely fail out of the gate, uh, are kind of given the uh, leeway over 1997, 1998, to turn themselves into the characters that they become, absolutely catch fire. Uh, the famed uh, Montreal Screwjob incident where Bret Hart uh, is uh, kind of duped out of the title on his way out of the company in 1997 also sets up Vince McMahon, who had previously just been a good guy announcer. Mm -hmm. And he ends up becoming the Mr. McMahon character, who is the biggest villain in the history of professional wrestling. The Austin versus McMahon feud just catapults the WWF into the stratosphere to the point that by, you know, 2000, you've got The Rock hosting Saturday Night Live, uh, just doing unbelievable business. The company goes public uh, in the early 2000s uh, and really has been on solid footing ever since. They've waned, since the end of WCW in 2001, waned considerably in popularity and television ratings are nowhere near what they were. You were getting... Eight nine million people at the peak, and now you know ratings are you know if you're if if the WWF is lucky they'll get two plus million people WWE is yeah. lucky they'll get two plus million people on a Friday night watching SmackDown on in prime time on network television on Fox, but the company financially has never been in a better space uh, than they are. They're gar they're essentially guaranteed a couple of billion dollars over the next five years. Of course, remember uh, with with McMahon the famous incident at uh, what. It was a Pepsi Arena at the time. Now, of course, MVP Arena is going through a couple of nicknames with uh, Steve Austin uh, hosing down uh, The Rock and Mr. McMahon with the, with the beer. That that was a memorable night down yeah, there. Yeah, there there have been surprising a, a lot of famous wrestling moments uh, at the at the Pepsi slash MVP slash Knickerbocker mm -hmm. Arena. Uh, the 1992 Royal Rumble, which is a, a touchstone moment for me as as a kid. It's Ric Flair's uh, Royal Rumble win where he wins the WWF Championship. Is at uh, is at the uh, is at the at what is then the very new Knickerbocker Arena. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, there's now Turner has wrestling again uh, with uh, the AEW. Yes. Uh, how does that play into the meet? It's because you know, they have CM Punk, they have Chris Jericho there, Sting is there. So, what, what, I mean, is that going to be? Is that going to put pressure on WWE? It, it has in ways. So, in September 2019. Uh, when AEW launched uh, on TNT, now has two shows, one on TBS, one on TNT, uh, WWE counter-programmed them. They took their, their third brand, NXT, went head-to-head -head with them for a year and a half, lost uh, in the ratings soundly for, I think, all but one or, one or two weeks. Uh, eventually caused them to completely rebrand what they were doing with their NXT program, moved it from two, from Wednesday nights to Tuesday, uh, ended up with Triple H, who was Paul Levesque, who was running uh, NXT, essentially for about eight months between that and a heart condition that was a health issue, health issue with him, basically took him out of play until oh, until uh, this incident came down on July 22nd, until Vince's resignation on July 22nd. AEW has really captured a market. Uh, it's not an overwhelmingly huge market, but they have begun to pick up the market of people who... Uh, were wrestling fans, but were frustrated with a very similar, very uh, very stale WWE product. They've picked up uh, a lot of ex WWE talent who's either talents whose either contracts expired, had been gone for a while, uh, or 
WWE released during the pandemic a huge uh, swathe of talent, uh, really under the auspices of budget cuts, despite the fact that the company was making record profits. Mm-hmm. And AEW's used that to grow to grow a roster and uh, has really it's a it's a very it's a very different product. Uh, WWE has always be- branded itself in the la- especially in the last 25, 30 years as sports entertainment. AEW is committed to being professional wrestling. What does um, Stephanie McMahon, Khan, and uh, Triple H had to do to get WWE popular again and keep the business model going well? It's it, Again, the thing with the business model is the business model for the foreseeable future is incredibly secure because of their television contracts. And I believe their TV contracts are going to come up again in 2024. And given the... Uh, the numbers that live sports do uh, for advertisers, especially in the 18 to 49 demographic, they're going to make another huge chunk of money. And it's guaranteed money. Uh, But for wrestling to boom, it always comes down to stars. Wrestling has always been in its biggest when personalities are their biggest. And WWF, WWE really, uh, especially in the aftermath of John Cena, who was the last major star has really searched for that. They believe they've got it uh, in Roman Reigns at this point, uh, but that's been an eight-year voyage to get him to the point mm-hmm. uh, that he is now. And it'll be interesting to see if they find if they find a guy you, with pretty much every major star the WWE WWF has had for the last twenty-five years. They almost failed at first. John Cena, The Rock. Uh, Steve Austin. All of them were at the end of, at really at a point where it looked like nothing. John Cena was, you know, days away from being fired when uh, he started rapping on a tour bus and they turned it into his, his original gimmick and became the biggest star they had for a decade. And yeah. What is the legacy of Vince McMahon? It's an incredibly complicated legacy. He's a guy who put, he's <laughs> a guy who put a lot of people out of business. He's a guy who has very probably, uh, as these uh, pieces come out, and there are apparently many more in the works, uh, Real Sports is apparently looking at him, the Wall Street Journal is continuing reporting, has very possibly done some really, really terrible things on a, on a personal level and skated for a very long time. Uh, but there's an entire multiple generations of people that he is the man who brought them profession, the professional wrestling that they love. It's a complicated legacy. Uh, there are people who are who were absolutely celebrating this. There are people who were in tears. Uh, it's complicated for me because I'm someone who did kind of grow grew up on that product, but very much grew distant from it. Uh, especially as I've learned a lot more about about who he is. It's really interesting to see. What I can say is that I'm shocked that it happened. Uh, he is absolutely someone who I never thought would retire. Now, as you mentioned, you have the new column that appears once a month called Sparring Session. Talk about what what uh, readers can see in the column. Yeah, once a month we're going to round up, you know, and really look at the entire world of, of combat sports in the Capital Region. That's, you know, first column uh, back earlier this month. Uh, I sat down with Jason Morris, uh, talked about the very, very large number of, of judo competitors he's got training out of Glenville, who are on the world championship stage, uh, getting ready for that right now. Uh, talk to Jason about uh, it's coming up, just coming up on the 30th anniversary of his uh, Olympic silver medal in Barcelona, uh, but also mixed martial arts, 
boxing, uh, any mar- any martial arts competition. We'll touch a little on uh, professional wrestling as well. I know I'm do- planning on doing a few things when, when AEW does make its Albany debut uh, in the middle of September. So really just kind of a one-stop shop for uh, for combat sports fans to be able to see a lot of what's going on. Do you think it's going to be a lot of fun? <laughs> I am very much looking forward to it. I've been able to, to do a number of stories uh, over the years. Uh, really did a, lot, a good amount of MMA reporting uh, in the years as it was uh, looking to get legalized because there was kind of a solid core of, of fighters based out of Amsterdam that I that I did some, a number of stories on. And it's an interesting community to be a part of. And what day will this column appear usually once a month? All right, so the plan, the plan is it's going to run the uh, third Saturday of every month. Okay, so we should well, have them coming up in the middle of August. Of course, that'll be in dailygazette.com or on dailygazette.com as well. And uh, Adam, appreciate a few minutes. I mean, I know you talk, you are passionate about talking about wrestling, so I figured with Vince McMahon's race and resignation, this was a good, a good time as any to chat about that, and uh, hope the listeners uh, enjoy your comments, and uh, we'll see what they say. Absolutely, thank you. All right, that's Adam Schindler of the Gazette. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast, and have the latest uh, winner in the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest in just a moment. All of us love sports. But not all sports are created equal. College sports have big budgets, dedicated alumni networks, and corporate sponsorships. Professional sports have even deeper pockets. Millionaire owners, lucrative TV and radio deals, and merchandise sales. High school sports have you. Everyone agrees high school sports give us plenty of reasons to cheer. And now's a great time for us to give back. Supporting your hometown high school won't cost you much, but it will go a long way to ensuring the games we love the most are here to stay. New York High School Sports. They're good for our kids, good for our community, and best of all, they're good for you. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, I'm Tom and head coach of the Albany Empire. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 22 winner in the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest was Chris Grzybowski of Scotia. Chris wins a $50 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Chris. The VIP winner was Jessica Woodruff of Dave's Gourmet Burgers. I'll announce the winner of the Daily Gazette auto racing contest, and that winner's name will appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. To play in the contest, go to dailygazette.com and click on the Auto Racing Contest banner. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Mike McAdam, Jake Fishman, and Adam Schinder for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Party Shots Podcast is a production of Gazette Newspapers. I am Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.
from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. Good day, good sports.